Thanks for joining us this hour on The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick. Every week, we're joined by Jessica Bennett, gender editor at The New York Times, and also Koa Beck, editor-in-chief at Jezebel, to help us better understand the Me Too movement. This week, Jessica and Koa took questions and comments from men about the movement. Jessica kicks things off. Okay, so Koa, last week on the show, we asked men to call in and give us their thoughts, ask questions, and and today we're going to take a few of those calls. But Let's just remind ourselves, you know, why is it important for men to be engaged in this conversation? Well, one of the points that you and I have made in the studio multiple times before is that for this conversation to actually affect change in our culture, it needs to not just include women and victims. It needs to include people who both have abused or who think they may have abused. Great. Let's hear our first caller. My name is Kyle Clark. I'm from Warwick, Rhode Island. I was just wondering, is there any particular way that the Me Too movement has negatively impacted the abused community and the sexually harassed community in any kind of way. I think it's a good movement. I think it's a effective movement. But is there any takeaways? Kyle, thanks so much. I think that's a really important question. Koa, what are you thinking? I think it's definitely been triggering for people who have suffered rape or sexual harassment Um, I know of those people. I am friends with those people. This onslaught of stories and cultural conversation have been very, very difficult for people I know who have experienced things like this in their life and have, for a variety of very complicated reasons, chosen not to revisit them, whether it was they tried to seek some sort of penalty for the person who abused them and were unsuccessful and just decided to bury it and move on, or who made the choice and rather the risk audit for their own career, their own personal safety, and decided not to push forward with any sort of penalties and have now had to relive a lot of why they had to make those decisions. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I also think that It can probably feel frustrating to some people who have gone through this to keep seeing these names in the press and in the media about very famous people. Mm -hmm. And those are not the only people that matter. And I've also heard from some men who have said they feel like their own abuse has been sort of shuffled over in the attention paid to women, which is, of course, a very important thing. But there is also abuse when it comes to men as well. Um, And now we will hear from someone who has concerns about false allegations, which has come up again and again in the Me Too climate. Hey, it's Ron, Madison, New York. As a man, Me Too, victimized by a narcissistic woman who came into my workspace repeatedly asking for favors and a uh, complicit human resources director. You know, false sexual harassment allegations uh, are made to advance their careers more often than you realize, and men don't complain about it since it's an embarrassment. Allegations are allegations, some credible, many not, and uh, with questionable motives attached. Ron, I think I'm hearing a couple of things, one of which is that men can be harassed by women too. I think that's a really important point that seems to not get as much attention in this moment because it's statistically less likely, but still important to talk about. So yes, that's absolutely true. But secondarily, I think what we do know is that false allegations are so, so rare, which is not to say it doesn't happen. But I think what we're seeing is the bubbling up of all of these cases that have gone underground and that haven't been reported for so, so long. And it's important to talk about them and it's important to air them. Um, Ron, uh, you bring up a quantifying measure in your call when you say 
Um, some are credible, many not. That's actually factually untrue. It's the other way around. Many are actually credible, very few are not. And the amount of anxiety and hand-wringing we do about that exact scenario, which is so rare, does not square with the statistical reality of how commonplace sexual harassment is. I do think Ron's point about HR is a very valid one. However, Mm -hmm. I think what we've seen in exposing the web of complicity in some of these cases is Mm -hmm. that HR is actually not there to protect employees. HR seems to be there to protect companies. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of an HR person who is complicit, I think, is very real. And this is one of the conversations that we have to continue having about how we change structural issues as well as calling out and exposing individuals because these issues will continue as long as this stuff is buried under the rug inside institutions. This is Kyle from Sacramento. I wouldn't necessarily think that Me Too has gone too far, but I do think that there have been people that have taken advantage of the situation. And I would like to say that in some circumstances, there are situations where men are put in the position to pursue a woman, and they do have to make that first effort of a kiss, a move. And in workplace, no, that's not appropriate. But in some circumstances, when you look at Aziz Ansari and his situation, it seems as though the woman was regretting a decision, basically interpreting it much differently at a later period of time. Kyle, I have a response to your inquiry. Two things I think that you should keep in mind. One, in this Me Too conversation, a lot of victims of sexual violence and sexual harassment are revisiting and rethinking things that have happened to them. And that is a very critical part of this conversation. Um, Not necessarily having said something at the time doesn't invalidate what happened to you. And critically thinking about abuse and abuses you may have suffered without the wherewithal, the literacy, the ability to articulate, to share, to report is important. The second part is that I think you need to pull back and consider a broader landscape in your inquiry in that a big part of particularly women's experiences in this country and in our culture is to be demure, always defer to other people, always privilege other people, always uh, privilege the comfort of other people, never speak up, never take a stance, and Yet within that same landscape, we are now asking why women in their most vulnerable moments have not stood up and asserted themselves and said, no, I don't want to do this. What you are asking for does not make sense with women's experiences and needs to be analyzed further. Koa, just to interject for our audience, could you explain what privileging means? Absolutely. Privileging is to prioritize one person's, in in this conversation, needs, identity, experience above that of another person. I would argue in the particular narrative of the Aziz story, one of the things that I thought was really troubling across Twitter, across national conversation, was the question immediately became, why didn't she say anything, as opposed to, why didn't he stop? That is because we privileged Aziz's experience as a man, as an authority, over this experience than that of Grace. Or why didn't he ask? Yeah. This next caller is actually referring back to a previous segment. Brian from New York City. I'm a huge supporter of the movement, but as a male in society, I find that I almost avoid vocalizing my experiences in the past uh, where I may have witnessed something that in hindsight wasn't okay because I, I fear that I'll be judged harshly for not acting perfectly. 
What would you say to someone like me who was afraid of the implications that speaking about movement in depth might have on how they're viewed by their peers or even by the media? Brian, I can respond to your question. I think that you should endure the criticism. I think that a big part of this conversation is men being accountable for things they have seen, things they have participated in, initiatives they have taken, and revisiting it more critically with a renewed understanding. So I don't think your motivation in here should be to avoid being criticized because that is something this conversation warrants. I also think it's okay to admit fault. In so many of the apologies we heard after men were being exposed— it was these hollow apologies that weren't actually apologizing for the action. They were simply apologizing that maybe you interpreted the action in a certain way. And so I think purely acknowledging where you may have made a mistake or that maybe you don't know the right thing to say or maybe you don't have all the answers and you don't know the perfect way to talk about this or that maybe you regret not having jumped in or been a bystander and reported something at the time is better than not speaking up at all. And the fact of the matter is so much of this stuff has been so silent for so long that there are many people out there who I think probably have similar experiences. And the reality is we need to start talking about it. Now we have a call from Kevin. My name is Kevin. And I'm from Providence, Rhode Island. I feel that in the Me Too movement, it's actually confirmed a lot of how I've acted in my dating life. I was always very shy and I've always felt like I needed to give the woman space to reject or accept me. And growing up and go, learning how to date, my friends would always give me advice to say, no, you need to be aggressive. You need to not give them that option. And I always thought that was wrong. And I honestly feel vindicated. Kevin, I think you're getting at something really important here, which is sort of the crux of a lot of this for me, which is that we learn these rituals and these courtship rituals that effectively, at least when it comes to sort of traditional heterosexual couples, ask the man to do something without the woman's permission. Making the first move is effectively taking an action that you aren't sure the other partner may be comfortable with. And so I think one of the really important things to come out of this, at least when we're talking about this kind of gray area, this murky nature of consent, of course, not in reference to these very clear-cut cases of sexual harassment at work, is communication, communicating. You know, how much of this could actually be resolved in some of these instances by asking if it's okay that you make whatever move that may be? Ko, what are you thinking? Kevin, I think a lot of what you described underscores for me language that's always been really bothersome for me that, that you know, is tailored for heterosexual men in courting women in that I've always loathed the term friend zone. Mm. This idea that there is a friend zone that women need to be moved out of <laughs> um, wholly operates from the premise that you are entitled to her and that she owes you something before you've even interacted. Why? Because you're a man and she's a woman. So I think that your ability to eschew that is something we need more of. And it sounds like you had amazing parents. <laughs> Jessica Bennett is gender editor at the New York Times, and Koa Beck is editor-in-chief at Jezebel. Well, that's all for us today. Always remember to give us your take. We want it on this show. You can tweet us at The Takeaway. You can tweet me. I'm at Todd Zwillick. Thanks so much for listening. I am Todd Zwillick. This is The Takeaway. <laughs>